Hey, welcome to Hindsight, the podcast. I'm your host, Lee Jones, and I'm thrilled to embark on this journey of exploration with you. We often find ourselves reflecting on the choices we've made and wondering how our lives might have unfolded differently if we had taken a different path. Here's the beauty of hindsight. It gives us a chance to gain wisdom and learn from our past decisions. Look, this podcast is a platform to dig deep into those pivotal moments and uncover the invaluable lessons hidden within. <laughs> Look, I'm Lee Jones, your host, and I couldn't be more excited to have you on board. So let's dive right in and explore the fascinating realm of decisions on Hindsight the Podcast. When you look back in hindsight, everything is 2020. In hindsight, we make mistakes we're learning from the in hindsight. Yesterday and your tomorrow in hindsight is so much clearer now. This is Hindsight the Podcast, and introducing your host, Lee Jones. Welcome back. It's me. Lee Jones, and I'm your host here on Hindsight the Podcast. In this episode, I'm excited to pick the brain of renowned author, speaker, and licensed clinical professional, Renel Purifoil, who possesses over 40 years of experience in the field of mental health. Throughout his career, Renel has dedicated himself to helping individuals overcome anxiety, stress, and other mental health challenges. He has written several highly acclaimed books, including Anxiety, Phobias, and Panic, which has become a go-to resource for those seeking practical guidance on managing anxiety disorders. Renault's compassionate and practical approach to mental health has earned him widespread recognition and respect within the industry. His expertise has been featured in various media outlets, and he has delivered engaging and transformative presentations at conferences and workshops worldwide. So I need you to take a moment and get your mind right. You good? <laughs> All right, let's get to it. How was that, Renault? That was great. More, I'm, 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 I went here to see what I want to say now. <laughs> hey, like I said, I appreciate you coming on the call. And the thing is, you know, with anxiety, that's something that I'm pretty sure is very, very common. Uh, with, oh yeah, with well, many you know, people. it's a normal, it's a normal part of life. You know, right? Uh, you know, anxiety is just all about threat, and uh, you know, the flip side of threat is, of course, anger. Anger, anxiety, both are deal with threat and. And how you assess it, if the threat is manageable, I'm going to get irritated or angry. I'm going to get rid of it. And if the threat is not manageable, I'll be anxious about it. I'll be fearful. Again, I, I use those, those words in a very broad sense. Anxiety can be from just apprehension to panic. And anger can be anything from irritation up to, you know, rage. Um, so it's, 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 it's the same circuit in the brain. It's just, you know, where it's dialed up to, how, how, how high or low it's dialed to. And there's certainly a lot of threats in in, in the world, and uh, oh yeah, you know, and just in daily life, uh, you know, if if you have uh, are feeling threatened in terms of relationships or my status or you know those types of things, as well as the more physical threats of you know danger or uh, you know money, that type of stuff, all, all that stuff can make you anxious. So, what inspired you to specialize in anxiety disorders and become an expert in this field? 
Well, when I started uh, way back when the dinosaurs roamed the earth, uh, <laughs> you know, I, as as a young therapist, I'm looking for where's something I can make my niche. Uh, I actually I did something that I would recommend to anybody starting in any field. I asked around and found a couple of uh, who are the two best people in my area, the most successful therapists, and I took them to lunch. And I because. Anybody will go to lunch if you ask them to, right? And then I said, okay, so how do I do what you're doing? And so they said, well, find a niche, find something that you enjoy doing and specialize in and get good at it, and then you'll never want for clients. And so that's what I did. I was looking around, and at the time, anxiety disorders was a fairly new field. Most people didn't know anything about panic disorder, and so I got some training in it, started working in it, and... Uh, just, you know, that's where it got started. And I found I liked it. Didn't want to do substance abuse, <laughs> you know, those types of things because your hit rate is low and I like success and with anxiety disorders, people get better. So for me, that was a great, great area to work in. So how, how and I know I'm jumping, I'm, I'm, I'm talking like now, right? Practical yeah. questions now. How do you approach the challenge of helping individuals with severe anxiety who may have tried various treatments without success? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I dealt a lot with what's called panic disorder. People have panic attacks and they seem to come out of the blue and they don't understand where they come from. And so it's kind of a, a number of things. First thing is they need to understand what's going on. And uh, if you have panic attacks, then typically you have a very reactive body. And if you look at anything, any trait that human beings have, for example, height, there's a high, you know, some people are tall, some people are short, and then there's an average height. And so people with panic attacks as a group generally have a more reactive nervous system. Uh, they get overloaded more easily. It's, I, I use the analogy of a house where the wiring is not quite up to code. You know, if you plug too many things in, the circuit breakers trip. And typically I'd say, okay, so tell me about your first uh, anxiety attack. Uh, what was going on? Well, you know, I was going to school full time and I was working and, you know, my dad was sick. I was taking care of him. My, uh, fiance decided they didn't want to get married and uh, i just don't understand where that came from you know it's like you say well wait let's back up the truck a bit you know i think i figured it out typically it's a stress reaction but the person doesn't identify it as that because they tend to be out of touch with their those signs of stress and they tend to be oftentimes a very uh, competent person and just keep pushing you know they, they have this idea that if i just keep pushing i can make myself do anything yeah. And so one of the concepts I try to get across to him is the idea that your body is a machine with a limited supply of energy. And some days your tank is full and some days it isn't. And for, for them, the anxiety attack initially was just a stress reaction, but then it takes on a life of its own because, you know, they'll start, you know, the, if you have something like that happen, then your first reaction is, gee, where'd that come from? And maybe pause for a moment to explain what a, what a panic attack is. Everybody's had a panic attack, but most people don't identify it that way. Uh, you talk about, in fact, I was listening to a, a person on the radio the other day who was talk, who used to be a uh, police officer, and he was talking about one of the arrests he made with a very violent person and how he was sitting in his patrol car and his legs were shaking. Mm. <laughs> it was the, you know, uh, I, I had an incident where this car decided to cut behind me. He got T-boned and he was rolling towards me. And so I, you know, pushed on the gas, got out of the way. And, you know, afterwards, you know, yeah, my body's kind of vibrating with that adrenaline surge that happens. And that's all a panic attack is. It's a, and it's intense adrenaline surge in your body, that old fight or flight mechanism. And so everybody's had something like that happen on a roller coaster or whatever. And because you understand why your body is reacting that way, 
uh, you don't, you know, you just, well, okay, yeah, that was scary. <laughs> and you don't think a whole lot about it. But if you're driving your car, you're sitting at your house or something, and then that reaction happens for no apparent reason, that gets your attention. And of course, they start doing what we call uh, negative anticipation. What if it's this? What if it's that? You know, what's my heart? What if I got a aneurysm? You know, whatever, you know, th those types of thoughts. And then they start doing what's called internalizing, where they watch their body. And of course, the more you watch your body, the more you notice. Because typically, we our focus is outside of ourselves. We're focused on the things going on around us. But they start to be, have this constant kind of monitoring of symptoms. And of course, as soon as they see a symptom that they associate with the anxiety, then the thought hits, oh my gosh, I wonder if that thing's going to happen again. And of course, as soon as they think that, it trips the old fight or flight mechanism and they start self-talking and they basically start self-generating anxiety attacks. And that's what you have to talk them out of. Quit doing that, right? <laughs> and that's a process. Uh, you give them relaxation tools, you know, um, military breathing, uh, you know, the, in through the mouth, slowly out through the nose. Uh, relaxation response, uh, and then self-talk, you know. And this applies not only for panic attacks, but for just about anything you work with. I have kind of a, a, a four-level four attack that I do. First of all is a simple explanation that you can give yourself for why this is happening. People waste a lot of time with what I call circular why questioning. And this is, you see this all the time when something happens with people. I don't understand why. I mean, how could that happen? I mean, this doesn't make any sense. And what's happened is a should-must rule or their perspective of how the world should be has been violated. And so they go into this kind of little loop. Oh, my, I, got, I don't understand what, what's happening. With clients, I would always ask them, okay, so why do you think that's happening? And they give me a perfectly reasonable explanation. It's just that they, it's something that they didn't want to accept in their worldview. So with panic disorder, you know, we, we'd come up with a simple explanation like, you know, I was overloaded with stress. I had a stress reaction that I didn't understand. Uh, and now I'm running from this boogeyman anxiety, you know, when really it's just a body reaction. And so the, something simple like that. Um, and, and, and let me just go on a totally different reaction. Let me take somebody who it gets triggered uh, in a particular situation because of, uh, you know, a childhood incident or, or, or history. Well, you know, I'm reacting this way because this happened in my past. And now I've, I've got that unconscious trigger. And so then from there, you, you manage it, right? You have your tools for managing the reaction. And... Then you uh, start with like panic disorder, you start practicing what we call desensitization. And you can desensitize to literally anything if you go about it in the right way. You see this with people working in like the operating room and warfare and all kinds of stuff. You know, it's amazing what people can become desensitized to with exposure. And so if they have avoidance patterns, which is often the case, if they've had panic attacks in the store, they'll quit going to the store or, or wherever. And so you start, you make a list of what are the things you've avoided and you start starting with the easy one. You start practicing it using your tools to manage your anxiety and you practice getting exposed so that you convince yourself that, you know, it is just anxiety. It's just a body reaction. I'm not going to die. I'm not going to have a heart attack. I'm not going to pass out. It's just an uncomfortable feeling. And once they convince themselves of that in a simpler situation, they start doing more challenging things until they return back to a normal life. And, you know, and it's, 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 it's a very mechanical process, but it works.
you know when you have those feelings like something feels like something's going to go wrong right it's it's like you know your heart you know beats a little faster your, your chest heats up and it just feels like something's going to go wrong and that's the one of those things that maybe you describe saying it just comes out of nowhere is is what is that a panic attack well, I, it may not be a full-blown panic attack, but, you know, even though it's not a clinical term, people call it kind of an anxiety attack or you know, anxiety episode, however you want to do it. But, yeah, it's just a body reaction. And uh, if you have a reactive body, and it sounds like you might have that, um, it's just part of normal. W- one of the conferences I went to, uh, the self-help group that used uh, my book or one of them, they all had this little button that said, so I'm anxious. <laughs> and I thought it was great, you know, because right. they, they recognize that this is just how they are. You know, uh, I know I, I've got a reactive body. If I've got something big coming up, I may not sleep that good the day before. And that's, you know, that's just part of who I am and how I'm wired and how I approach life. And the more you can come to accept that, then the less it affects you. It's when you start worrying about it and saying, oh my gosh, you know, if I don't sleep well, then I won't do well on that presentation. And then, and then I'm going to make mistakes and people, you know, and you start catastrophizing all these things that are going to happen, right? Rather than just say, well, so I'm anxious, you know, yeah, that's how I am. Okay. So, Hey, did you have any, any panic attacks or anxiety prior to uh, going into the field that you're in? Like, do you recall having any episodes and then now you figure it out like, Oh, okay. I just have an anxious body. Well, I, I, I share a lot of the traits for the people I worked with in terms of having a reactive body and the sensitivity, that type of stuff. Uh, but what, what, what shields me from having panic attacks is my personality (laughs) (laughs) because I just, you know, well, that's how it is, you know, folks, you know, (laughs) I, I remember when I first started doing presentations, I, I would get all anxious about, well, what if I forget what I want to say? You know how you do that happens occasionally. Absolutely. And I'd get all nervous about it. And then, then finally I decided, okay, if I can't remember what I'm saying, I just say stuff like, well, hey, gang, my, my brain just turned to jelly. I forgot what I was going to say. It'll come to me in a moment. And I'd start talking about something else. And, and sure enough, in a moment later, it would come to me. And uh, same thing like when, you know, when I play guitar, when I was younger, I used to worry about, well, what if I mess up? And now... Well, actually, I had this jazz guitar player that I took lessons from. He was great. He says, you know, if you make a mistake, you just want to do it twice so they think you mean it. So <laughs> That's it. <laughs> that is a great, a great strategy, right? <laughs> so, you know, the, the, and again, you know, if, if you just accept that that's who you are and, and mistakes are not that important, you know, when you deal with social phobics or speaking anxiety, especially, um, it's interesting because people really worry about making mistakes and what people think about. And that's a junior high school thing, right? Uh, a lot of times people had, a, you know, a lot of teasing in junior high school or they have that kind of mentality. And so, you know, start talking. So, so first of all, I, you have to understand that I'm in the adult world now and most people don't really care about me. I mean, that's a sad fact, but it's true. <laughs> you know, if, if I make a mistake, they may notice it and they may laugh for a moment, but then they're back thinking about themselves, you know, what they're going to have for dinner, where they're going, what they got to do. And so you're just really not that important to them. So I would use the phrase, you know, that you know, it's, it's not going to be in the evening news tomorrow. So I have a bald head, uh, some by choice and, and some, you know, but not by choice. But anyway, I have a bald head. And when I get up, I feel a little confident when I have to speak in front of people. But 
then I begin to sweat. And because I have no, you know, like a sweatband, <laughs> maybe I should wear a sweatband when I get up and speak. It just makes me more nervous. And it makes me feel like, how do they feel about me? I'm sitting here sweating like I'm scared to death. I don't feel scared, but I guess I am. Right. And then I, you know, I start doing those uh, circular why questionings, I guess. Yeah. Right. When I, I'm up there. Have you ever watched uh, any, any video of Louis Armstrong's playing as a trumpet? Yes. Well, watch me. He's, he's got that rig, right? And he's wiping his face and his head and everything, you know, and, and he's sweating like crazy while he's playing, you know. Uh, and, and you don't really think anything of it because you're so involved with the music that's going on. Right. Um, and, you know, if you have to have something like that and you do it, you just, you just, the more you can kind of make fun of it rather than take, become really sensitive about it. Hey guys, you know, I sweat like a pig sometimes. So I got to wipe my face, but that's okay. We're, we're going to move on and we're going to make, we're going to make this happen. See, the more you can approach that rather as opposed to, Oh my gosh, what people want to think, you know, they're not going to think about anything because they're more concerned with what it is you have to say and give to them. In fact, that's the other thing when I was doing public speaking training is technique is far less important than content. I've watched some really awful technique, but the speaker has such engaging content that you don't notice it. <laughs> and, you know, you've probably had that experience too. You, you watch people who, if you analyze their technique, you know, yeah, this technique is terrible, but you really got involved with what they were saying, and that right. overrode the technique. Now, technique is nice if you can have the technique and the content. You know, that's, that's kind of ideal. But... Uh, Content always overrides uh, the other stuff. If you've got something engaging uh, and something that people want to will take some value out of, that's what they're going to focus on. The rest right. of the stuff is all going to be secondary. So I'll, I'll put that in my uh, tool bag uh, next time I get up in front of people and start sweating. Right. <laughs> so yeah, just bring that. Just bring that rag out. And say, hey, gag. You know, here we go. <laughs> And you know what's funny? You know what's funny? I do bring the rag. And it uh, seems like when I bring the rag, I don't do all that excessive sweating. It's weird. So, it, it's, anyway. It's, a, it's that paradoxical thing. The more you accept that stuff, the less it happens. Yeah, And, and the more you worry about it, the more it happens. Right. There it is. And that's true for just a lot of different stuff in life. You know, And, and that's where that, that self-acceptance just come into terms with the fact that this is how I am and this is how I go through the world. And if people don't like it, tough. I mean, that's one of the great advantages of getting older is you really don't care about what people think. Right. There it is. We're going to talk about your book, why you feel the way you do. But before that, as an author, what motivated you to write your books on anxiety? And I know it's because it's in your field. And uh, what key insights or strategies do you offer to the readers? Well, I, I've I've always been a teacher. Even when I was a kid, I, you know, I, I would help other kids with stuff, and just that's part of getting my wiring. Part of who I am is, mm -hmm. is I'm a, I'm a service oriented person, right? And when I first started the uh, working with anxiety disorders, I uh, developed a, a mail order program where I would mail once a week some lessons and some audio tapes and stuff to people and. And, you know, they'd work through it. And that became a real burden. So I said, well, I just, why, why don't I just put it in a book and stick it all together and sell it that way? And so I did. And um, that was an interesting process in itself <laughs> because, you know, I, I'm this little nobody here on the West Coast. And I'm, I'm 
sending out to publishing companies and you know i get about 50 rejects right and half of them say well it's too specialized and the other half say it's too generalized and so that means the real reason is nobody knows me right and when you publish a book there's two places where it can get uh, uh stopped first of all the the editor will read it and if it's got good content he'll say hey this is great okay so then they pass it on to the sales department and the sales department decides will this market or not? And so they can kill it there. So it can be killed either by the editor or the sales department. And in my case, it was the sales department because I wasn't connected to Harvard or any big, you know, organization. Right. So I self-published and uh, back then it was easy to get on uh, talk shows because it was before the politics started dominating everything. Right. And uh, sold 50,000 copies. And so then Warner Books said, hey, looks like it'll sell. So, yeah, we'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was kind of how I got into the into it. Okay. And essentially just, you know, the, the Emotions book is just kind of came out of the blue for me. I had somebody, uh, actually a former client, uh, contact me and say, hey, why don't you write another book? And uh, I got a publisher. They'll publish it. And I said, well, I don't know. So thought about it. And I said, you know, I've always been – interested in emotions ever since I was a kid in uh, when I was a sophomore in uh, high school they called me Mr. Spock so <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Spock okay so you're interested that's, that's, in emotions that's when Star Trek first came out right you know and I, I I like Spock you know I was an, I was a science you know nerd and right, all that right. stuff and uh, uh, always involved I just, with- I just I just find that funny because Spock seemed to be void of emotion well and that, that's the whole thing is you yeah. know I, it, it fascinated me, you know, that, that whole thing. And uh, both my parents came from farming backgrounds, so I raised chickens and rabbits. And, you know, we had other kinds of animals, cats and dogs and geese, whatever. And, uh, you know, I would train them, you know, had the, the chickens get up on little boxes and stuff, you know, things. And so animal behavior was fascinating to me. Back then, the, a guy named uh, Conrad Lorenz uh, was real popular. He was doing his initial work on imprinting uh, where – Birds, uh, when they see us, hear a certain call note or an object on like a beak, like a seagull, you know, a spot on the beak or whatever, then they imprint on that as the parent, right? And so he was talking about imprinting and all that stuff just, you know, fascinated me. So that's that's when I got into college, what I specialized in was animal behavior. Mm-hmm. And, then, and I went into teaching for a little bit and then um, decided to move into counseling. So I just shifted from animal behavior down to human behavior. Which, you know, sometimes you think of it as a step down, but, uh, you know, because animals are so easy to understand. <laughs> Humans, we hide stuff very well. Right. That's true. <laughs> but uh, really, it's pe- people are easy to understand once you, once you figure out how, how this stuff works. So Yeah. What's a key takeaway in your book, Why You Feel the Way You Do? Well, it, it goes through, actually, it's an arc that has like three sections. And the first section is just, you know, those emotional circuits and a lot of the new research has come out. Uh, and, and that kind of forms the basis of understanding, you know, how you manage your emotions. Um, so maybe take just a minute to run through that real quick. Um, em- emotions are, the neuroscience calls them affects. And so affects have three different levels at the uh most base level, you have what they call sensory affects, heat, cold, pressure. And so affects cause you to want to do something. They're motivators. They generate behavior. So if I'm really cold or hot, then I want to, you know, cool down or get warm. Uh, or if there's, I'm sitting in a chair for too long, the pressure makes me want to shift around. So it, it generates behavior, this desire to do something. 
the next level up are what they call homeostatic affects, and those are things that keep balance in your body. So hunger, thirst would be uh, two common ones. You know, if I'm really thirsty, I get really motivated to want to drink something. You know, if I'm hungry, then I want to go eat something, right? Right. And it's just, they're drivers. And so emotions are drivers that cause you to do things. And from a, um, you know, from a, a, a perspective of like mammals in general, because we, we share them with our pets, they're all designed to get us good stuff and avoid bad stuff. So like one of the circuits that's really interesting is the uh, seeking circuit. And uh, you look at babies, they want to explore their environment. So they're out there, you know, chewing on everything, licking on everything, touching everything, crawling around, exploring it. And even as adults, you go to a new situation, the first thing you do is you check out what's going on around you. And that's a survival thing, right? You want to be aware of positive and negative things in your environment. And it's a drive that almost unconscious, you know, you do it without even thinking about it. You just, it's the driver that says, yeah, you need to check out my environment here. Uh, another one that's kind of interesting that uh, most people aren't aware of is the play circuit. And again, you look at all baby mammals, they like to play. I mean, my, I, I've got my uh, three and a half year old uh, great granddaughter uh, I, I work with and she is funny because it's always you tickle me, tickle me, you know. Oh, <laughs> no, that's right. Uh-huh. You know, and play is how, when we're young, we learn limits. Right. And if you ever worked with a little kid, you know, they want to play. And at some point in time, they, they start getting a little bit too rowdy or start doing something that they're not supposed to be doing. So it's like, hey, you know, cut it out. That's not, that's, you now exceeded the limit. But as adults, we still like to play, right? And that, that interplay between us also helps to establish boundaries and limits and connection. It's one of the ways we connect. And then we have two fear circuits. One is danger, but the other one, uh, they call it panic, but uh, we, we see it in uh, children as separation anxiety. You know, babies, when they're separated from their parent, then they, they go into distress, and that triggers a caring circuit in the parent. Oxytocin is one of the things that you see gets elevated in those situations. And as adults, that's what why we miss people when they're gone and also part of what bonds us to them when they're together. So it's a really relationship thing. So we're very highly social beings. And so those two circuits help to connect us together. Then, of course, there's anger, which is a protective thing. Uh, and then uh, lust, which we all know about once puberty hits, right? <laughs> <laughs> And those are the seven circuits that basically drive us to do the things that we 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 do in life. Uh, they're the things that motivate us to get up and take action. Um, the other thing about emotions is emotions are the way that your brain uses to, if you will, index information to sort information as to what's important and what's not important. Uh, mm-hmm. Your brain is uh, works on the basis of associations, and associations that either are positive or negative will get an emotional tag. And the stronger, you know, the more uh, either pleasurable or unpleasurable or, you know, dangerous it is, then the stronger the emotional tag. That's why experiential learning is more important than book learning. I can learn everything there is to learn about a car and how to drive it. But until I get behind the wheel and actually start driving, the brain doesn't know what to do with that information. So now I start driving. Oh, that didn't work. Okay, that association now has a negative 
you know, uh, emotional, emotional tag. Then I drive, oh, this is working good. Now that has a positive tag. Your brain is doing thousands of things every moment of your life that you're totally unaware of. Mm-hmm. When I walk down the street, my brain is judging distance. It's looking out for obstacles, associations of what might get in my way or might be a problem, how things are going well. It's coordinating my body. And all the while, I'm busy thinking about, again, what I'm going to eat, where I'm going, you know, somebody I talked to yesterday. Uh, and that's the beauty of, of the way our brain works is it can do all this stuff without us being aware of it. And, of course, that's where the problem comes in. <laughs> sometimes <laughs> we get negative associations that start getting triggered, you know, uh, without without conscious awareness of it until it gets triggered. And then, you know, we, we experience the emotional side of it. All right. Let me ask you a question. Right. I don't know why I had to preface it with let me ask you a question. But you, you, how, you may. <laughs> <laughs> how does knowing those seven circuits help us to make better decisions? Well, it gets to with where we have these negative reactions and understanding that these circuits are driving us uh, at an unconscious level, right? So a very, there's, there's like uh, simple triggers and more complex triggers. So let's take a very simple trigger. The one I use in the book is, peop- uh, is a couple of people that are on an airplane uh, and it gets struck by lightning. And uh, I know my brother, my brother had this happen, and I've had some clients where this has happened. And it's a real frightening thing uh, because the whole plane shakes, you know, and it's just, you know, it, it rattles you very well. And one person, you know, well, both of them, the next flight, they're going to have some anxiety. My, my brother, I mean, I remember him talking about when this happened to him. It took him three, four flights before uh, he was comfortable again. <laughs> I don't play and you know, and that's an unconscious thing because you've got that negative association now with danger and airplanes, and so just thinking about the airplane can trigger anxiety. Even and even packing, getting ready the day before will trigger some anxiety because of that association that's been made. Now, what you do with that depends upon whether it quiets down or it escalates. If you start again doing the worrying, oh my gosh, you know that that was terrible. I don't know if I can do airplanes anymore, and you start doing that type of thinking, then it's going to escalate the anxiety and and, and enhance that trigger, that emotional trigger that's associated with danger. Uh, if instead you just you know start self talking, well, you know that was a scary experience, but you know nothing happened. We landed okay. Uh, it was just a scary experience, and you know I was safe all the time, and. Uh, probably never experienced that again the rest of my life, you know, and you start doing that type of self-talk and then distract yourself, then um, it'll quiet down. So the, the simple triggers, basically what I say is you tell yourself what's happening, what's real, and then you do a positive shift. So what's happening, I'm anxious because of what happened to me that last flight. What's real is nothing bad happened and I'm safe and it's probably never going to happen again. So, and then you focus on something positive to just shift your attention away from that. And and I think understanding the way emotions work helps you kind of do that desensitization process. Uh, because we are experiential beings, beings. We have to experience things and we have to go through that desensitization in order for change to happen. Uh, these associations, you know, we, we use the uh, computer mo- uh, analogy a lot, you know, that we're going to reprogram the brain we're going to delete that program and the brain is not a computer it's an organic thing 
And so memories and neurons are more like a muscle. You either strengthen them by repetition or they atrophy when you don't use them. They never mm. go away. They never go away completely, these circuits. Um, and that's something that's important to know too, is that occasionally old programs and old old associations will trigger, especially if you just have the right set of circumstances. And this happens most commonly when you're sick, hungry, tired, or under a lot of stress. Because that's right. when the cognitive part of your brain, the thinking part, is not functioning as well. Which gets us into a whole other thing, which is this, this, this stress management is that everybody has things that they do that uh, indicates when stress is starting to have an effect on them. Uh, you'll have ways that you act, things that you say. In, in my case, uh, if I'm really stressed out about something or thinking, you know, something's bugging me, I'll spend more time playing some stupid little computer game. Um, sometimes there's a change in how I use language. Again, my, my dad was a sailor. Um, mm -hmm. And so if I notice some of these types of behaviors, then that just is a signal to me that, you know, yeah, this is, this is bugging me. And so maybe I need to take some action about it. So, you know, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking about what you just said, and it reminded me of a time uh, I was in Alabama. What was, was it, Alabama? I was in Birmingham, and mm -hmm. same thing. And um, I went on a um, zip line. It's not a tour, it's just I did a zip line. But the okay. thing is, I'm afraid of heights. Okay. And there was this humongous tree. And because, you know, a zip line and right, you had to climb up the oh, inside yeah. of this tree. Yeah. Right. And it was super slow. And every step up was heart wrenching. I mean, it was it was horrible. And I couldn't do a positive, you know, think of like yeah. you're safe, you're good to go. What my positive thing was these two little girls that were behind me. Yeah. If there were only adults going up this tree, I would have, go I would have not gone. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I was looking like if these two little girls and they were laughing at me too, cause I was very vocal about how scared I was going up there. Yeah. But if these little, if these two little girls are comfortable enough and like, you're going to be okay. Right? right. That kind of calmed me down. So there's, there's a little bit of external. Uh, and then I had to obviously take that external uh, message and internalize it. Right in uh -huh. order for me to keep taking steps forward. But once I got to the top and they were like, go, I just jumped right off, which is so weird. But it was just the anxiety and the the thought of climbing that tree. Now, now if you would have done that 50 times uh, in a row, probably you would have gotten relaxed going up. <laughs> Absolutely. Because after that first time I considered it, but it's such a long wait, you know, it, yeah, it really yeah, yeah. took a long time to go up that tree. Uh, so it was, I, I, it I was horrible. You know, and, and one shot deals like that, you just do the best you can. It's like if, if a person, not, not, not like in the case of my brother, he, he would fly two, three times a week. Right. So he got right. desensitized very easily. Um, but if it's, you know, you fly, once every few years or something and you're anxious, that's where maybe taking, you know, some Xanax or something, you, yeah. know, some, you know, it's, the, the, it's, it gets to how much effort do you want to go put into desensitizing and some things just aren't worth the effort. And of course you've probably got a long history of things from childhood about heights and stuff. That's all part right. of those associations. And so for just climbing up a tree one time, probably not worth going through the whole process of desensitization. You just kind of muscle it through and do what you need to do. Yeah.
That was a lot of muscling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you made it, you know, and that's the other oh, thing. Oh, yeah. It, 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 it was is, enjoyable. It was it's enjoyable. It's retrospect. And, and next time you're in a situation like that, you can maybe recall back to that experience and say, you know, I got all upset and it was for nothing because I actually enjoyed the zip once I got down the line. So Right. Exactly. And, and you can use that in, in the future to help uh, help manage the anxiety that comes up. You talked about uh, triggers. You talked about uh, circuits. What I want to know now, because this is this is one thing that you brought up as well. Um, the three things positive psychology has identified as creating a happy life, because everyone, well, maybe not everyone. I do. I won't speak for everybody, but I want to have a happy life. And if I can have three positive, you know, three things that can help me get to that point. Everybody does want to have experience happiness. A lot of times they just don't know how. <laughs> there you go. I just don't want to be presumptuous well, and, and well, speak for everybody. And, and again, positive psychology has kind of come up since around 2000. In okay. uh, 1999, the uh, head of the uh, American Psychological Association did a presentation and said, you know, we need to start looking at the things that uh, generate mental health because we, for the last century we've been, been focused on, you know, disease and mental problems and stuff. So let's, let's focus, do, do some research in the other area. And so there's been quite a bit over the last uh, 20 years or so of research. Number one big thing, which probably is not going to be a surprise to anybody, is relationship. Having positive, healthy connection with another human being. Uh, that's one of the big crises with uh, people in our country today is we're so isolated and especially with the younger generation, uh, this is one of the big problems with social media, is they don't have quality, healthy connection with other people. Part of what you see in all of the uh, anxiety and depression that's been increasing in, in recent years. And, you know, it used to be people had lots of connection. You had your town or your village or your block or whatever. You had people that you grew up with. If you had a problem that you couldn't talk to your parents, you went down the block to somebody else. You know, you had the other older people that you had a connection with. And, um, you know, and, and that is just so, so important. I mean, these circuits that we talked about, uh, we got a bunch of them. You know, the play circuit, the caring circuit, you know, the separation anxiety circuit. All this stuff has to do with connectedness with other people. And when that's not being fed, uh, we're not happy campers. It's it's real important for human beings to have positive connection with others. And again, that's one of the big crises nowadays is people don't have that. Uh, second one is uh, purpose, reason to get up in the, war in the morning. Uh, and it can be a narrow purpose. I'm going to be the best widget salesman I can be, or I'm going to be the best parent I can be. So I can be narrow or it can be broader. You know, I want to do something that's going to help people. I want to, in, in my, uh, in my case, you know, I, I really enjoy teaching. I, I enjoy trying to provide tools that people can use, you know, just live more successful life. That's, that's part of what drives me. And again, mm -hmm. you can have more than one purpose, right? And family certainly is a secondary or another primary uh, purpose for me, you know, uh, and then the third one is is the hard hardest one to kind of get your hands wrapped around, and that's meaning. Uh, what is how do you give a context when things don't go well? Uh, you can think of it as your spiritual or your existential belief system. Uh, 
Um, you know, certainly religious beliefs play into here for a lot of people. Uh, in our modern world, uh, many people don't have a good existential belief system to take care of themselves. It's a very negative, kind of nihilistic type of a um, belief system. One of the things I like to point people to is some of the uh, the near-death experience research that's been going on for quite a while now. And uh, mm -hmm. I think it was the 70s, uh, uh, Moody wrote his book, Life After Life, which was kind of launched a whole bunch of research on uh, uh, near-death experiences. In fact, uh, one of the the things I uh, talk about today is uh, in the book is, is uh, some of the research, a major one that was done in a very scientific way. And all these researchers... At the end, they came to the conclusion, you know, something's going on. These people are experiencing things and they're reporting things, oftentimes that have third-party confirmation. Their brain is dead. The heart's not beating. There is no physical explanation for what's happening. And that's as far as they go, of course, because, you know, they, they don't want to speculate anything metaphysical or spiritual, right? Uh, so something's going on. And when you go into the thousands of episodes that people talk about, you come away with the idea that, yeah, there is something after you die. Now, where you go with that, I'm going to just leave it up to individuals to explore. Uh, I mean, I have my belief system, but, uh, you know, people need to figure that out for themselves. So many people in our country today, you know, life is just, we're just little mechanical beings, and when we are dead, it's all over. And so if that's your perspective, then my goal needs to be to maximize my happiness now. And when bad things happen, my gosh, you know, it's, it's, it's tragic. They don't have a way to put those things into context. So that's what I mean by your spiritual existential belief system that gives meaning to life. You know, what, you know, it's at the big questions. Is there God? Is it not a God? What makes a person happy? You know, what, why am I here? You know, why is, why is there something rather than nothing as I look around, you know? And that forms the context for your purpose. And again, that, forms uh, a big motivator for a lot of areas of your life relationships purpose and meaning and again what is it that young people nowadays often lack <laughs> yeah like relationship purpose and meaning yeah it's uh yeah so, 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 <laughs> so it's, no, it's no mystery why things are going on the way they go you know the triple threat in the wrong way right yeah 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 you know june I, believe, I don't know if it's worldwide, but at least nationally, June is uh, Mental Health Awareness Month. <laughs> and, you know, this question I just wanted to ask, what are some uh, common misconceptions about anxiety disorders uh, that you often encounter and how do you address them uh, in your work? Well, first of all, anxiety is a normal part of life, right? And go. any disorder you know, from a, you know, when you look at the DSM, you know, definitions of it, it's just an exaggeration of something that's a normal part of life. You know, depression is a normal part of life. Uh, if it becomes extreme and, or if it's being caused by internal, you know, biochemical stuff, then it becomes a disorder. Uh, you know, anger, you know, we all experience it, but if a person has really big problems with it, then it becomes, you know, we, we label it as a disorder. So, so these things are normal things that are way, 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 way uh, exaggerated. And so with anxiety, the goal is to not eliminate it because the only way you can eliminate anxiety is to be dead. And we don't want that. 
So we need to just pair it back into a more normal you know, range. And what that is for one individual is going to be different from another individual. You know, some people, like I said, have more, they're just more, ner- it's like a, lit- a, a litter of puppies, right? Some mm-hmm. are going to be more anxious than others, you know, and that doesn't mean they can't live a happy, successful life. It's, again, part of it is learning how to just accept that and not let that interfere with your life and to minimize the more exaggerated parts of it. Uh, and so with anxiety, it's it's out of the different things. That's one of the things that there are good treatments now. Sometimes medication gets involved to help just manage, you know, the more exaggerated symptoms until you can get the cognitive behavioral stuff locked in. Um, but people can, can return to a normal life if they've been very anxious. Right. So I asked you a few questions. Mm-hmm. Is there anything um, that you'd like to share that maybe I didn't ask? Oh, we got a couple more hours. Yeah. So (laughs) (laughs) we'll do a part three, four and five. No, I, I, I I think that I've, we've covered a lot of territory uh, and a lot of it's been kind of the five minute, you know, brief uh, introduction to it. Um, Certainly, you know, if, if people are interested, they could buy the book and get into any of this stuff in a lot more detail. Um, but I, I think there is always hope that things can get better. And I think that would be the message I want to leave with people is that if you find the right person or the right source of information, then uh, there are solutions out there. Uh, and a lot of the solutions have to do with, again, coming back into balance in your life. I mean, people live such unbalanced lives nowadays, yeah. uh, especially in terms of, you know, re- you know, what we were talking about relationship purpose, meaning, you know, uh, and it affects us in so many different levels. Yeah, that's a that's a good ending. You know, it, it'll get better, mm-hmm. right? Uh, mental. It, there are yep, there are solutions out there. Thank you, everyone, uh, for joining us on this episode of Hindsight the Podcast with our special guest Renault Purifoy. Uh, Renault, your insights and expertise have been uh, like truly valuable to me and hopefully to to all the listeners. Uh, and to learn more about Renault and his work, visit his website at Renault P or R E N. Is that right? No, well, there's an easier one. <laughs> Go ahead, why, let's get an easier one. <laughs> whyemotions.com. So W H Y Y emotions.com. Why emotions.com. Yeah, that's and easy can, to remember, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I'll put that in the show notes as well. Um, you can also find uh, his books, including Anxiety, Phobias, and Panic, and Overcoming Anxiety and Panic on major online platforms. Make sure you subscribe to Hindsight the Podcast so you never miss an episode. We appreciate your support and feedback. Thank you, Renault, for you. sharing your wisdom uh, with us and to our listeners and keep embracing self-growth and learning from the past as you navigate your own journeys until next time with hindsight we move forward hey i really appreciate your time right now i appreciate you inviting me thanks for tuning in to hindsight the podcast i hope you enjoyed this episode i know i did and don't forget to hit that subscribe button to stay updated on future episodes packed with inspiring stories before you go Leave me a message with your thoughts, feedback, or suggestions for future topics. And if you're loving what you hear, please take a moment to rate this episode. Your feedback helps me to grow and reach more listeners just like you. So remember, life's a journey. Stay tuned. 
stay curious, and keep gaining wisdom through the power of hindsight. Until next time. Oh, and don't forget, subscribe, leave a message, and rate this episode. When you look back in hindsight, everything is 2020. In hindsight, make mistakes, we're learning.